Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Come and take a trip in my rocket ship. We'll have a lovely afternoon. Kiss the world goodbye and away we'll fly. A destination moon. We'll travel fast as I like to out of sight. The earth will be like a toy balloon. What a thrill you'll get riding on my jet. A destination moon. We'll go up. And we can't really take you there, but, you know, yesterday we took you deep into the past with a show about dinosaurs, which we did from the Great Hall of the Peabody Museum in New Haven. Today we're going to take you to the moon with a man who has been there, a man who also wants to take you to Mars. That man is, of course, Buzz Aldrin, astronaut and engineer. He was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 11 and was, was one of the first two humans to walk on the moon. His new book is called No Dream is Too High, Life Lessons from a Man Who Walked on the Moon. Buzz Aldrin, first of all, it's an honor to have you on this show. Thank you so much for doing it. Uh, well, it sure is nice to talk to somebody who was, what did you say, 16 when... Uh when we landed on the moon? I am, well, let's see. We could work backwards there. But yes, I was a teenager when you landed on the moon. So um, okay. let's, let's, uh, t- let's, let's grab a couple of lessons here from, <laughs> from No Dream is Too High. Uh, one of the first ones is that you were not automatically accepted as an astronaut. You had to uh, persuade your way in there. Tell us that story. Well, um uh, going through flying training, I was not the first one to solo. Some students, some officers going through fly, tra- flying training just seemed like they were born in the cockpit to fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was pretty good. I got a couple of MiG pilots who bailed out who would attest to that. Mm-hmm. And I've uh, been doing a good bit of flying since, but I just didn't want my career in the Air Force uh, at, uh, let's say, 10, 15 years of service uh, to be governed by my, uh, we call it stick and rudder hmm. talents. I didn't want to just be a precision flyer of airplanes coming off the assembly line or into the future. I wanted to do more future-oriented or combat operations oriented rather than the test pilot career. So I just elected not to do that. Now, when I was sitting on alert with nuclear weapons in uh, 1958, I think it was, Life magazine came out and talked about the Mercury program and uh, the the pictures of the Atlas rocket and the uh, Mercury capsule, and it uh, said that all the people going to fly these, called astronauts, uh, had to have test pilot experience. And uh, uh, my thoughts sunk a little bit because I thought that might be uh, a good career for me at some point, uh, a little further down. I certainly, at that point, had planned to uh, leave. Uh, uh, 
1959, go to MIT and work on a two-year master's, uh, which I proceeded to do. And then I changed to a three-and-a-half-year for a doctoral degree. And my very good friend from West Point, a year behind me, Ed White, was later killed in the Apollo 1 fire. Uh, he had been in Germany a couple of years before I got there, got me into a very spirited squadron. He rotated back, uh, went to Michigan, got a master's test pilot school, then testing airplanes. He called me, uh, or we communicated in 1962. He said NASA is interested in uh, augmenting the seven uh, Mercury astronauts by making another selection uh, and he said, I'm, or he was qualified and he was going to apply. So uh, my reaction was, well, I can shoot gunnery better than you can because we had represented uh, our squadron in NATO uh, competition. And, uh, and I knew that Ed was a very capable uh, guy, would be a great uh, potential. But I thought that I had uh, the, the same flying qualities uh, going into uh, space-type craft, and my education might be a little bit more developed in the realm of uh, spacecraft rendezvousing in space with another spacecraft. Uh, and that was what I had pioneered, and it eventually was accepted by NASA to be the way of uh, making the final intercept in a, an idealistic way and then making corrections. And people had not thought of doing it quite that same way. Uh, so uh, uh, that, that of course, was in the future, but it's, it's the kind of confidence that I thought I had in my educational and uh, experience background to become accepted as an astronaut. So it was quite a disappointment uh, when uh, when I wasn't selected, but uh, uh, I felt that I could begin to educate NASA if they hadn't already uh, been aware of the work I was doing. So I applied again in 1963 and was accepted in the uh, third group of uh, 14. A second group was nine, uh, so we had a total of, uh, I think it's about 30 total astronauts at that point. Um, Buzz Aldrin, people forget that uh, before you were an Apollo astronaut, you were a Gemini astronaut. You, among other things, can lay claim to having taken the first ever space selfie. Uh, tell us about your space selfie. Well, uh, I just told you that I, uh, I had helped develop the rendezvous techniques, and I proceeded to assist others in training the early astronauts that did the rendezvous, and I made it clear that uh, to the higher people that I would certainly appreciate being on uh, a, a Gemini mission uh, to participate in our rendezvous uh, activities. And uh, uh, the response was uh, no nodding, yes, we hear you, and when the assignments came out, I was on the backup crew with Jim Lovell to Gemini 10. And uh, uh, when 10 flies, then you have a crew for 11 and 12, so the backup crew for 10 flies primary on 13. 
but there wasn't any 13. So I was going to be on a backup crew but never fly uh, in the Gemini program. And that was very disappointing. It did not prompt a big complaint. Uh, I've learned that there are times when you do need to complain and you do need to assert yourself. I'm not sure whether that was clear in the book. But uh, a tragedy intervened. My backdoor neighbor, a very, very talented Air Force uh, officer, Charlie Bassett, as the uh, number two or the pilot uh, of the uh, prime crew for Gemini 9. So the backup crew took over, and now they needed a backup crew, so... Jim Lovell and I were now back up to Gemini 9. And when it flew, they had a crew for 10 and 11. So we were assigned as anticipated to uh, Gemini 12, the last flight, and the second opportunity to uh, exercise the number one Air Force experiment in the entire Gemini program, which was uh, a, a fairly in, very an expensive backpack maneuvering unit. If you have any questions as to what it could do, uh, just uh, remember seeing George Clooney uh, in Mm -hmm. the movie Gravity flying around, uh, uh, a little carefree about uh, Mm -hmm. where and what he was doing. But uh, um, anyway, that had a great anticipation for me. Now, when it was flown first, uh, it was not a success because of a number of uh, uh, maybe improper, uh, excessive use of force to overcome uh, uh, a drifting away positioning when you're spacewalking. The foot restraints uh, were not very good. Uh, they improved quite a bit, uh, but it was still the uh, uh, fact in the Gemini program that space walking was just not very successful after Ed White's uh, first uh, demonstration with a very minimal uh, maneuvering capability, and, and Mike Collins uh, did a uh, rather reasonable, uh, very credible uh, movement in space over to another spacecraft, recovered something, came back, and uh, had a little uh, crowding of the umbilical to try and get back in the hatch, but everything worked out fine. Uh, but other than uh, that, uh, it was not a great anticipation, and NASA knew this, and uh, some people from the East, uh, in around Baltimore, had done some studies, and they suggested to NASA that the floating in space of zero gravity, or the unaccelerated, that the spacecraft and everything in it has relative to other things, could be very well duplicated by the buoyancy, neutral buoyancy, in water uh, by attaching weights to a pressurized spacesuit And uh, having been a scuba diver for nine, ten years before, I could certainly see the great merits in uh, 
trying this technique, so I became the first one in the last mission of the Gemini program. Uh, and, of course, uh, things went very well, and I was very confident that I could uh, deal with the complications of the uh, Air Force uh, maneuvering backpack. Well, NASA still didn't have the confidence, and they decided they would cancel that without fully understanding the uh, promising uh, training that I was pioneering in neutral buoyancy. You know, Buzz Aldrin, uh, I'm scared we're not going to make it to the moon here. Uh, we may have to skip over some parts of the Gemini story. Do you want to just quickly tell us that story of taking the selfie, though? Yes, that was uh, 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 a mission... Uh, with two night passes where I would, with the hatch open, stand on the seat and we would align the spacecraft to take time exposures with the ultraviolet camera that was attached to the spacecraft uh, right behind me, uh, reachable to uh, activate for five, ten second exposures. So during the daylight pass between two night passes, we were kind of Earth sightseers. Uh, and I looked around, and uh, it, it uh, occurred to me that maybe I could uh, uh, see what the camera could do uh, during the daylight if a, if a face was in front of it. So I looked at the camera and clicked a shot. And uh, what turned out was not very ideal lighting conditions, but that was Jim Lovell's problem because he was handling uh, which way the spacecraft was pointing. Uh, anyway, it didn't have a name at that point, but right. I thought it was, uh, take a picture of yourself. So now it's a selfie, and uh, contrary to all the achievements in the International Space Station, uh, Whatever their claims are, they were not the no. first to take a selfie in space. Hey, you get there first, especially hey, a space walking selfie. Oh yeah, no, that makes it even. That increases the degree of difficulty uh, when you're actually walking in space. Buzz Aldrin, I want to also kind of set the stage. I'm going to take us back in time for a moment to maybe explain how how we even got to that point and, and where we were headed, and and some of it came from the voice of this man. Why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. That, of course, is John F. Kennedy uh, talking about uh, kind of really invigorating a nation uh, to, to think about something that it had never thought about uh, before, Buzz Aldrin. And, you know, there are so many people, so many engineers, so many pilots like you, so many people who played so many different roles in the space program. But, boy, it really helps to have a great public speaker kick the whole thing off. 
I would say, a great leader, Mm -hmm. a great understanding of what the nation needed. Now, that speech was a year and a half after his speech before Congress that committed us to going to the moon. Now, a couple of months before that speech, President Kennedy, according to some people who uh, revealed this uh, little-known fact, uh, at the 100th anniversary of MIT uh, uh, Astronautics Department, uh, Kennedy went to NASA and uh, said that he thought we should go to Mars. Mm-hmm. Well, jaws dropped all over, and, uh, well, sir, we just don't think that that... Uh, but but uh, we'll, we'll put together what we think we can do. Uh, so over the weekend, the NASA people got the charts all together, and Monday morning... Uh, the head of NASA went over to speak to the president, and he said, uh, well, Morris is just totally out of the question, uh, but maybe we could get to the moon in 15 years. Now, the, the person who was witness to this, a highly credible person, I, uh, I think it was uh, Bob Siemens who was part of the Air Force, uh, Secretary of the Air Force, uh, <clears throat> but... Uh, It was a very busy weekend mm-hmm. for NASA putting those charts together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's indicative of somebody who uh, wasn't all that aware of what the possibilities were, but this president wanted to do the very best, the most that we could do. Now, today, there are moon people and there are Mars people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, they're, they're one or the other, usually. Now, I feel the American people would just not be enthused about America leading or doing whatever with the international com- countries by picking up where we were 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. They would just not think that's very much progress. Mm-hmm. Well, the further refinements of my plan cycling pathways to Mars by duplicating some conditions that exist at Mars and doing them very similar to that as we uh, assemble a base on the moon uh, that other nations build. We design, they build it, they land it, we bring it together. So we know what to do with a very similar base at Mars. Now the conditions, I've modified some uh, to be more like uh, what we would do at Mars rather than the conventional thinking and the, the study that was done at Purdue uh, right. is to have a fuel depot uh, away in space from the moon and to control things from locations that were at rather great distances from the moon, right. closer and, than and, Earth. And, and, Buzz, and Buzz Aldrin, a little bit later in the show, I really want to go into detail about this, first with you and Martha Gilmore, who's a geologist who studied Mars, but also with you and Hoppy Price, who's also looking at ways for NASA to get to Mars. But if we could just take a moment or two, and you may be tired of talking about it, but nobody else in the world is tired of hearing about going to the moon 50 years ago. So uh, I, we have to ask you one or two other things about this, including, you know, what did you do when you landed on the moon? When, once you, I mean, we all know about the, the first thing that you said, the first thing that Neil Armstrong said, but what did you do on the moon? We followed a uh, prescribed uh, uh, two-hour uh, series of activities 
uh, as best as uh, we could lay them out. And uh, uh, since I was the junior member of the crew, uh, it it fell naturally since Neil symbolically uh, came down the ladder and was the first one to symbolically for the media and the people to uh, be the first one to uh, uh, stalk, to walk on the moon. Uh, he became the leader of the experiments outside. Now, that was not the way it should have been, I don't believe, because of the training workload that the commander had, uh, and that was one of the reasons why all the previous uh, spacewalks was always done by the junior member of the crew. Okay, this is different because two guys were on the moon, and a very symbolic activity uh, needs to be decided who's going to be first and then what the hell he's going to say. That became uh, an obsession almost uh, of the media. Mm -hmm. Uh, So not much thought was given to the important things. Why were we there on the surface? And who's going to lead that? Mm-hmm. Okay, we knew what the procedures were, but it fell into the same uh, commander's a commander. So he was doing things, leading things. I took a picture of a boot print. That was one of my contributions. Uh, but he was a very good photographer and took a very good photograph of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he accomplished uh, uh, many of the collection of... Uh, uh, activities uh, while I was uh, 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 putting up a, a Swiss experiment to catch uh, particles uh, that were coming from the sun and a very complex uh, seismometer that could detect uh, volcanic activities uh, in the moon. It was so sensitive that later when we uh, uh, disposed of the heavy backpacks to lighten the weight uh, while we threw them out the hatch door. And when they hit the ground, the people back in uh, Houston could detect that something just hit the earth, Mm -hmm. I mean the moon. And uh, so it was pretty sensitive. That was a complex uh, experiment. I have to ask Uh, you about another experiment you did. Uh, I I guess it's an experiment. Uh, You write about it in the book, uh, No Dream is Too High, uh, but this is Buzz Aldrin's book. Uh, life lessons from a man who walked on the moon. One thing you mentioned is that you may have been uh, number two on the moon, but you were the first person to go number one on the moon. You actually did uh, go to the bathroom on the moon. Now, was that an experiment to see what would happen, or did you just have to go to the bathroom? Well, uh, I had looked out the window and seen how easy it was for Neil to uh, uh, move around and collect a contingency sample. Uh, And then uh, uh, I uh, sent the camera down. It would have been clumsy to carry the camera for him to carry it going down the ladder. So we had a very, very sophisticated uh, pulley and clothesline (laughs) to send the camera down and the rock boxes uh, back up again uh, at the end of the flight. So I I could see him moving around. So it, it was no concern of mine. Uh, when I got down and eventually jumped up to the bottom rung of the ladder after missing the first time. Uh, but but then uh, to acclimate myself, there wasn't any need to do that because it was quite obvious that it was easy to move around on the surface. So looking around and 
and uh, noting things, there was the opportunity to uh, exercise the device called a UCD, that's a urine collection device, and for people later on who are going to be out there for uh, five, six hours, uh, I think that we needed to test it early in the uh, uh, spacewalk. Absolutely. And so, now you can call that what you want, yeah, uh, no, whether I, it was an urge or... A, it was a research. Uh, research. I call it research. Hey, Buzz Aldrin, um, I don't think anybody uh, could have had as much fun afterwards uh, as you seem to have had. You really seem to have enjoyed your life post-moon and, and all the opportunities that came along. You've obviously also got a great sense of humor. Uh, and so we're going to play a little montage. I think it starts with you being in a Transformers a movie. And from there, we'll hear some other things that you've done as you've kind of enjoyed your status uh, in the universe. And from a fellow space traveler, it's a true honor. The honor is mine. Gentlemen. I'd like you to meet the two experienced astronauts who will accompany the winner into space. Ray Spanion and Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon. Second comes right after first. Check it out. I is here with none other than my main man, Buzz Aldrin. Do you think man will ever walk on the sun? No. The sun is too hot. It is not a good place to go to. What happens if they went in winter when the sun is cold? Legendary astronaut Buzz Aldrin and his partner, Ashley Costa. So that's Transformers, The Simpsons, The Ali G Show, Dancing with the Stars. Buzz Aldrin, you've been having a lot of fun. Uh, well, I, I don't mind being uh, second to uh, Simps- Simpsons and second <laughs> to Ali G. Uh, but, but there were a few other things. You know, when I chose to not stay with NASA but to return to the service after uh, uh, NASA... I uh, was going to go back to the Air Force. I'd been for two years at the Air Force Academy, and that seemed like a very logical way to uh, uh, get back into the Air Force. That isn't what happened. I was sent to command the test pilot school, the Mm -hmm. school that I had chosen not to become familiar with. But now my first assignment after 11 years was to command this school. Well, I'm a role model. Yes, and I did get along well with the students, better than the illustrious historical Chuck Yeager did. Mm -hmm. I was more friendly with the students uh, by testimony of uh, students and instructors. Uh, But I didn't feel that that was preparing me for what I really wanted to do. So uh, it, it discouraged me a good bit. Uh, but it didn't affect uh, the leadership that I had at that time. But when I retired uh, and tried to figure out what I do next, an inherited tendency for depression that caused my grandfather to commit suicide and my mother to commit to do that before uh, a year before I went to the moon. So with that history, I was. kind of stewing around, wondering what I'm going to do next without a very disciplined life. And I think as happens to many people like that, uh, whether you would call it a PTSD or anything like that, why I began to to rely on the soothing influence of alcohol. And that began to dominate uh, my uh, 
my life for a, a good bit, was advised and was helped in a initially slow recovery from alcoholism. I now have 37 years of sobriety, but you can't touch a mental condition that needs adjusting when it's being poisoned by uh, an addiction of some sorts, whether it's alcohol, drugs, or whatever. You, you have to uh, have a clean uh, mind to be able to uh, discuss, uh, discover with professional help of sorts uh, lifestyles that maybe need, need changing. Well, uh, I've been doing that now for a good number of years, quite successfully, I think. Uh, yes, I did do things that appeared in the public, they were fun. Hmm. I did not have a nine-to-five job uh, that was uh, particularly consuming my time. And uh, when asked to be a part of uh, Dancing with the Stars, mm-hmm. uh, that was a telephone call, and I was in the uh, uh, the White House executive office uh, at the time I got that phone call. Uh, I shouldn't have picked up the phone, but I did anyway. Uh, so I uh, said, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> then I found uh, one of the greatest uh, physical demanding uh, uh, rehearsal uh, preparation for uh, a very exciting uh, accommodate. <laughs> company of some very attractive ladies you did and you did you even moonwalked as part of your uh performance hey we have to take a quick break uh, buzz aldrin we're kind of going to come back uh we're going to add martha gilmore to this conversation uh and we're going to start uh, talking about one of your favorite topics buzz aldrin mars We are uh, talking, and we continue to talk to Buzz Aldrin. Uh, talk about somebody who needs no introduction, but uh, Buzz Aldrin, astronaut and engineer. Uh, his new book is called No Dream is Too High, Life Lessons from a Man Who Walked on the Moon. Uh, joining our conversation in studio here is Martha Gilmore, professor of geology in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Wesleyan uh, University. Um, Martha, I'm going to start with you in this segment. And just, you know, yesterday uh, when we did the show on dinosaurs from the Peabody, we talked about mesofacts, this way in which, for most of us, information that changes kind of gradually and slowly, we can't keep up with it. So I'm guessing the average person listening right now doesn't know what we do know about Mars. In, in a nutshell, Martha, can you just tell, tell what's, our, what's our level of understanding of, say, the geology uh, of Mars right now? Well, I, I, what I'd like to say is that, uh, you know, our knowledge of Mars has really increased over the last two decades, and that's because of a sustained series of missions uh, a flotilla of spacecraft in orbit, roving, and on the surface of Mars that have been able to learn upon each other's discoveries and leverage each other, uh, each other's assets. So we understand now not only that it was habitable on Mars uh, at the same time that it was habitable and that, that life evolved on Earth, but also where it was ha- where it's habitable. And so the last lo- rover that we landed on the surface of the planet, 
has landed in a place where there was mud and there were rivers and uh, there were uh, sustained water over long periods of time. So we understand now a lot about the history of Mars and history of water on Mars and the environments that existed on Mars at the same time life was evolving on Earth. So, Buzz Aldrin, if Martha Gilmore knows that much about Mars, what's the argument for having people go to Mars? Uh, if we can find out that much with robots, with machines, with probes, with rovers, why send people up there? Well, it's certainly true. We know more about Mars right now than we did about the moon before we went there. Uh, so we built on the knowledge of uh, the moon as an object in space and uh, what we've learned by visiting other locations, uh, we add all that together and we do know a good bit uh, about what the conditions are on Mars and they are far better life-sustaining now than the moon is. Um, and yeah. There's no question about that. There is no better place that we know about in the solar system than Mars to establish a growing permanent presence of human beings. Uh, and I feel that that is in our destiny, is in America's destiny to lead that expedition or that exploration continuous inhabiting the planet Mars, not just visiting or not just occupying and rotating back, but to permanently inhabit. And for economic reasons and a good number of others, I believe that we're able to do that with proper uh, pre-positioning and uh, verifying things on the surface of Mars after having done the same thing on the surface of the moon that will support Europe, Russia, Japan, and China, and some advanced uh, uh, work on fuel potential by the U.S., not by extensive uh, human landings. We know there is no previous life on the moon, but we have suspicions, as you opened your discussions, that, that life could have begun at Mars the same time as it began here, but because of uh, no magnetic field, the uh, solar wind whipped away the atmosphere and it began to get colder. Or, well, it first uh, tended to uh, evaporate a lot of the water, then it froze, and then the winds blew, blew the dust over the frozen oceans, and we have bars of today. Let me, let, so me just, let, me just, let me just interrupt and ask Martha about that. Would, would, does that conform to your understanding? Well, let me ask you to ask it a different way. Do you think that it's probable that at some point uh, in its history, Mars did have life on it? Uh, well, that's the question, right? So one of the, the most compelling question, perhaps, of humanity is whether we're alone. And so um, the easiest place, perhaps, to answer that question in our own solar system is the, the most habitable planet that's closest to us, which is Mars. And so if we find life on Mars, that tells us, that answers that question uh, as to where we're, whether we're alone. If we don't find life on Mars, that also tells us something about the habitability of our solar system and of solar systems in general, as we're discovering planets around almost every star. 
um, and you know makes us makes us think about how habitable you know maybe the fact that nobody's contacted us is the fact that there's nobody there. So both answers are important. Uh, Let me ask you this, and then I'll go back to Buzz. Mm-hmm. Another reason people get interested in this is that they feel as though we're wrecking this planet, uh, and that maybe we about to think about having a place to go. So, Martha, what's your as a geologist, as a scientist, what's your reaction to that? Okay. Well, as a geologist, I know that um, evolution is driven by environmental change. And so, you know, sometimes that's good and sometimes that's not so good. It depends on the species, you know, for the dinosaurs' demise led to the evolution of us. So, you know, that was a bad day for them, but here we are. So um, we will respond to environmental change. That response may not be comfortable um, and we might lose. (laughs) So, um, so. You know, I, I think uh, you know having an ace in the hole, of, which is being able to go to another planet, is uh, maybe a practical thing to do. You know, uh, Buzz Aldrin, that speech I played a little bit of that Kennedy speech for you, uh, and l- later on he he was very concerned about basically our enemies on Earth getting uh, too big a foothold in space, getting an advantage in space. But then he also just talked about the the fruits of what we would learn from doing something like this, from going to the moon. Are are those still the two motivators for going to Mars, or is there another single good reason for you, the the best reason of all to go to Mars? What is that? Me? Yes. Oh, it's because it's there. (laughs) And if we don't find life there, do we pack up, come home, and uh, uh, just sign off on our curiosity and stew around here and as you and maybe others would say, continue to mess up this planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that our destiny? So, in other words, just to, just to have our eyes aimed in, in some other direction, uh, it, it's just a good thing for our kind of collective global mental health? Well, to, to uh, use a couple of words from a speechwriter, we explore or we expire. Mm-hmm. It's in our genes. We are curious we want to know, and by knowing, we learn, and we progress by learning, and we are a very progressive society that uh, competes somewhat to see who can win the race, who can come up with the better uh, mousetrap, whatever, yeah. uh, because of the economic system that if you have a better mousetrap, uh, you'll uh, be able to sell more of them. So uh, we've become a, a world full of mousetrap builders. So, Martha Gilmore, now that you're on a first-name basis with Buzz Aldrin, chances are uh, in about 14 years he can get you uh, on one of these sh- shuttles going to Mars. Is that something, as a scientist, you would want to do? Would you want to go to Mars? Uh, I don't have the temperament to be an astronaut, I have to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a particular type of, of wonderful person. Um, so, but I hope my children go. All right. So we're going to take a quick break, or we're going to add a what yet one more voice to this conversation, talk about getting there, how we're going to do that. Buzz Aldrin has some ideas. So does Hoppy Price. We'll talk to both of them and Martha Gilmore after this. Till touchdown brings me around again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home. No, 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 no. I'm a rocket man. Rocket man burning out his fuse up here alone. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. Till touchdown brings me around again. 
Uh, we're back. One of the things that Buzz Aldrin says in his book, No Dream is Too High, Life Lessons from a Man Who Walked on the Moon, is surround yourself with good people. So that's what I did. Uh, and so uh, right uh, now on the producing this show is Josh Nalea, one of our producers. We've got sort of a new team here on the show, and uh, this is one of the shows that they've all kind of worked on together. Uh, this is Josh's baby, but uh, Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McNichol, our other two producers, have both uh, made big contributions. And we have new interns who will doubtless, they are young people who probably will go to Mars, uh, Adriana Smith uh, and Esther Shitu uh, have been working on this show with us today. Brand new, very young interns who will probably go to Mars. We're going to talk to uh, more to Buzz Aldrin uh, and to Hoppy Price, chief of the robotic Mars exploration program at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. But first, well, first, let's hear uh, from President Obama about Mars. Early in the next decade, a set of crewed flights will test and prove the systems required for exploration beyond low Earth orbit. We'll start by sending astronauts to an asteroid for the first time in history. I believe we can send humans to orbit Mars and return them safely to Earth. And a landing on Mars will follow. And I expect to be around to see it. All right, so President Obama uh, thinks he's going to see it. Uh, Martha Gilmore, a lot of people would be sitting out there. Martha Gilmore, professor of geology uh, at Wesleyan University are sitting out there going, well, we don't have the money to do that. It's going to be too expensive. So uh, as Kai Rizdahl likes to say, let's do the numbers. All right. Well, the, here are the numbers. So if you, when Apollo flew, uh, the, it was 5.5% uh, of the uh, annual budget, federal budget. So our budget's $4 trillion. Um, so that's about $230 billion, okay, to, if, if we spend the same amount to go to the moon, uh, to go to Mars as we did to the moon. So to put that in context, um, Americans spend a billion $100 billion on beer a year, okay? Um, and uh, I know I contribute to that. <laughs> but, uh, and $120 billion a year on fast food. So those two things alone would cover that amount. And if you want to think about something besides, you know, fast food and beer, I mean, the building of the interstate highway system in today's dollars costs about $500 billion. So it's a decision you have to make if you, you know, to, to go to Mars. It's a decision to spend the money, but it's a decision that can be made. You would mention uh, beer when we've got uh, a guest named Hoppy Price coming on, uh, chief of the robotic uh, Mars exploration program at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Also with us is Buzz Aldrin. I, um, so, Hoppy, I'm going to get— I didn't quite get what you said we were spending today on NASA space exploration. We're not spending that today at all. I was just— No, uh, but tell me, tell me a percentage. Oh, gosh, it's— uh, 0.05% of the national okay. budget? It was over 4% in 1967. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And no. it dropped down, of course. Yeah, and no, we're spending much, much, and much less. And it's half a percent now. Mm -hmm. So, um, Hoppy Price, uh, uh, Buzz Aldrin has some thoughts about this, too, but Hoppy Price, tell us, how are we going to get to Mars? You, you have a proposal. Right. So, uh, some of my colleagues at JPL, along with a lot of help from people at other NASA centers, we came up with a, sort of a minimal architecture for sending crews to Mars using vehicles that, that NASA is currently planning on developing. And uh, we, we put together a program architecture and a timeline, and our goal was to fit within NASA's current budget for human spaceflight uh, adjusted for inflation. And so we were able to come up with a, a, a program that fit, and that would send people into orbit around Mars, a crew of four, in 2033. And in our example of a mission set, uh, they would spend about a year on the moon Phobos in a habitat there and explore Phobos. 
and, and they would demonstrate the system for getting to Mars and back. And then fitting within the budget, we were able to do the first uh, Mars landing on the surface in uh, 2037. Um, and, and then there would be other missions that would follow that, and uh, there would be a series of missions where a crew of four would go to Mars and land uh, every four years, which are the, the Mars opportunities, on uh, a continuing program. And, uh, and in our costing, which was actually done independently by the Aerospace Corporation, uh, that, that fit within NASA's current budget. Um, and so, Buzz, uh, how does Hoppy's plan differ from – I know you've got a very specific idea about how you want to do this. Well, I believe if I understood, as I witnessed hearing Hoppy's plan and then uh, actually was there for another presentation at both times, near the end, I said, now let's not talk about present budgetary and inflation. Tell me throughout this time period what percentage, because that's what we understand. We understand what it took us to get to the moon, and I'll tell you exactly, if you want, how sparse that was. Mm -hmm. Two guys for one day. Mm -hmm. Okay, we did that six out of seven times, and it finally moved up to two guys for three days, okay, Mm -hmm. at the end of 72. What do we got to show for that? Okay, 4%, 5%. Now, uh, your study was an overlay on whatever else NASA was doing. Everything in that study was using SLS and Orion and whatever other things we don't have yet, because you said we have landers. We don't have landers uh, for Mars yet. SpaceX is ahead of us in having landers. Uh, The background of what I'm going to say is that the message that you, working under a NASA center, are sending to a future president of what we can get by with and call it a minimum program that has no contributions from internationals, does not use SpaceX or anything else. It just uses the rockets and spacecraft that NASA wants to advertise and build from now to eternity, maybe, if certain politicians have their way, uh, and they're based on ancient technology, but they want to keep building them. Uh, You're sending the wrong message to a world leader. Maybe you're sending the right message to China because China and Russia would have absolutely no problem joining together or separately of doing far more inspiring in the world. Okay, I just want to, we're almost out of time here. I want to give Hoppy Price a chance to, to respond to that. Uh, I guess he's suggesting that there's a better way to do this. I'm sure, Hoppy Price, you've heard this criticism before. No, no I think that when he ends up telling me uh, what percentage he had when the four people were able to get there, what percentage of the budget uh, enabled that to happen? A half a percent? Go ahead, Hobby. Go ahead, Hobby. I just I want to make sure he gets a chance to talk. Oh, okay. So, 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 Buzz, we were looking at an example, an existence proof of staying within the current budget, which is about 0.05 percent of 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 the uh, of the budget. 
And uh, and clearly, if we were going to implement this program, we, we would bring on the internationals. And, and over time, we would evolve to building up a base on Mars and, and expanding on that. And, and ultimately, I think we would want to achieve the, the vision that you outlined in your excellent book, Mission to Mars, and uh, the vehicles that we are planning on building that, that NASA is developing today, the solar electric ion drive uh, propulsion tug, the deep space habitat. Uh, we are working with SpaceX on, on their Red Dragon lander to learn from them and to go to larger landers from Mars. Uh, over time, uh, this program would build up to, to your vision, Buzz. Um, we're almost out of time. Nothing ahead. at the moon. Nothing to encourage uh, the other nations to follow us, to cooperate with us. Nothing to uh, uh, obtain the fuel from the moon to be able to get to Mars, much less be able to do for the other nations at our assistance a human human landings on the moon far cheaper, far easier than we did. We are no all, Saturn Vs, no SLSs. We're almost out of time here. We're almost completely out of time. I want to end on a, on a different note. So, uh, Martha Gilmore, uh, even if I offer you extra leg room, apparently you don't want to go to Mars, what's the first thing you want somebody to find out? When we have humans walking around on Mars finding things out about Mars, what do you want to know? I want to pick up a rock that looks just like the microbial mats that we see in ancient Earth three and a half billion years ago. And because it will tell you what? That we're not alone. There's yeah. life in the solar system, in the right. universe. Um, well, listen, it has been a terrific to talk to you, uh, terrific to talk to Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin's book is No Dream is Too High, Life Lessons from a Man Who Walked on the Moon, uh, and to Hoppy Price, Chief of the Robotic Mars Exploration Program at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Obviously, uh, Buzz and Hoppy uh, need to get together over uh, some Coca-Colas uh, and have a good conversation about how this is all going to happen. But thanks very much to uh, my NASA team here. Once again, it's uh, Josh Nalea, Jonathan McNichol, Betsy Kaplan, uh, and our terrific interns. We're going to be back tomorrow with a show about hydration because, you know, if you're going to go to the bathroom in your spacesuit on the moon, you got to be properly hydrated.